Let's go ahead and get started this morning. So let me pray for us, and then we'll do a quick recap. We are working through the epistle of uh, 1 Timothy, and we are going to cover the entirety of chapter 3 this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we thank you for your goodness to us in Christ. Uh, We do pray as we um, talk about elder and deacon qualifications that you would continue to bless your church with faithful officers and servants. Lord, we pray this for our own congregation and for your church throughout the world, that you would be at work calling young men and uh, that they might aspire to this noble task and office of serving and leading your church. Uh, We also pray for the prison discipleship ministry um, in light of the PDM awareness dinner that many of us attended this week. We do pray that you would provide uh, the funding and the volunteers needed to continue this ministry and that you would draw many of your people to yourself in the prisons and jails in Virginia. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So by way of uh, recap where we've been so far, uh, in chapter 1, we looked at how Paul has charged Timothy with addressing the problem of false teaching that has cropped up in the church in Ephesus. And these false teachers were misusing the law, uh, looking at it as a means of justification, uh, limiting the gospel, and swerving away from the, the apostolic teaching um, and the, the clear conscience and the godly lifestyle that we are called to as Christians. And so Timothy was to wage this good warfare of gospel ministry by defending the apostolic faith and by living a life of integrity. And then in chapter 2, Uh, Paul pivoted and started to talk about what does life in the church between believers look like? What should we be characterized by as the children and the people of God? And he highlighted prayer, first and foremost, that we are to be a praying people, that we are to pray all types of prayers for all types of people, because uh, God desires the salvation of the lost and sent Christ as a ransom for all of his people, both Jew and Gentile. And Christ has fully paid that ransom And so the redemption of the elect is secure in him because the atonement is effective. Um, And then we talked about how men and women gathering in the church are to be marked by prayer and by modesty and dress, respectively, with all the uh, attention focused on God, that we are to honor him when we gather together rather than to be focused on ourselves. All right, so now in chapter 3, Paul is addressing the question of what sort of person should serve in church office, in leadership in the church. And there's a couple connections to uh, chapter 1 here that I want to highlight for a minute. Uh, 1 Timothy 1, verse 1, uh, Paul comes out right at the beginning and says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. And we talked about how he was defending his authority right, to, against uh, the false teachers And so here he's, again, kind of addressing that question of authority, instructing the church what type of man the congregation should give ecclesiastical authority to. And then in verses 5 through 7, he talked about the goal of apostolic teaching. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And so this output is love issuing from this pure heart and a lifestyle, this good conscience. And the false teachers have swerved from these characteristics. And so here in chapter 3, 
uh, t- uh, Paul is describing what does the true minister look like in contrast with the false teacher. And so he's really getting granular with Christ's teaching from Matthew 7, uh, talking about how the tree is known by its fruit, and we see that here. All right, and then before we jump into the qualifications and read the chapter, uh, I want to make two kind of precursor comments as we think about office in the church. And the first is that Christ is the head of the church, and he is the one who ordains its governance. So Christ has instituted the officers, he's instituted governance in the church, um, and this is maintained by these elected uh, officials that we call officers. And so there's two types of office, we think, uh, throughout church history, uh, and those are ordinary and extraordinary. So, and there's two classes within each of those. So two extraordinary offices are prophets and apostles. Uh, we think about these offices having revelatory gifts that God used to help build the foundation of the church, which is the revealed word of God. And those extraordinary offices were temporary in nature, and we see that by the fact that there's no succession plan uh, that was appointed for them. So no apostle appointed a, su- a successor. Um, so those were roles whose function was fulfilled when the canon of Scripture was closed, and that meant that the apostles' work was finished. And we get a really nice uh, summary of that in our book of church order. So I'm going to read chapter 7, paragraph 1. It says, Under the New Testament, our Lord at first collected his people out of different nations and united them to the household of faith by the ministry of extraordinary officers who received extraordinary gifts of the Spirit and who were agents by whom God completed his revelation to his church. Such officers and gifts related to new revelation have no successors since God completed his revelation at the conclusion of the apostolic age. So then we have two perpetual offices in the church that we see in 1 Timothy 3, and those are elder and deacon. We get a nice summary in uh, BCO chapter 7, paragraph 2. And uh, there's, there's uh, some people take different views of this. So there's the, the three-office view versus the two-office view, if you are familiar with that. So some people will actually say that uh, the pastor is a completely separate office from elder and from deacon. Um, the PCA says there's two offices, but they make a distinction between teaching and ruling elders. Um, and so it says here, the ordinary and perpetual classes of office in the church are elders and deacons. Within the class of elder are two orders of teaching elders and ruling elders. The elders jointly have the government and spiritual oversight of the church, including teaching. Only those elders who are specially gifted, called, and trained by God to preach may serve as teaching elders. The office of deacon is not one of rule, but rather of service, both to the physical and spiritual needs of the people. In accord with the scripture, these offices are open to men only. And so when we think of the office of elder, it says, it, here it talks about uh, ruling and governing. So ruling and governing authority in the church has been given to elders. Um, we see throughout the New Testament uh, that there's the same word, and it's translated different ways, elder, presbyter, bishop, uh, overseer, and it's all talking about the same office. So 1 Timothy 3, 1, this word uh, that's used elder in Titus 1 and in 1 Peter 5 is translated here overseer. Uh, talking about the nature of the task. Um, and Peter himself ties the, the two ideas together in 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, when he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. 
shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So talking about that governing function. And we typically think of the responsibilities of elder in uh, three categories, governing, um, teaching, and shepherding. And so that would include things like um, organizing worship, making decisions on behalf of the church, teaching and preaching, uh, shepherding, disciplining, exercising pastoral care. All those things fall under the office of elder. Um, The Greek word for deacon is diakonos, which means servant. And so the deacon, by contrast, as we read in the book of church order, is more focused on the temporal needs of the church, whereas the elder is more focused on spiritual nourishment. Uh, but I love the, the fact that, that, you know, the reality of the office of deacon speaks to the fact that God cares about body and soul, right? That we're not just brains on a stick, that God created the physical world, he made it good, and he cares about the physical needs of his people as well. So we see that in the institution of the office of deacon in Acts 6. <clears throat> this is talking about the church in Jerusalem. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So we have this distinction in the offices there that we see in this institution of the office of deacon. And how it's one of leadership but is focused on serving the body's needs and leading the congregation in service rather than governing and teaching. And there's some thought here, given the fact that the church in Jerusalem had thousands of members and they appointed seven men, that it's always been an office of leadership from the beginning in organizing people uh, to assist with this work. All right, and then the second uh, precursor comment I want to make before we actually uh, dive into the whole chapter here um, is the fact that Uh, it's a noble task, and we see this in verse 1. So this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Um, So it's a good thing for men to step up in this way, to serve the Lord in official uh, capacities when nominated by the congregation. And it's a good thing to have aspirations uh, themselves. So I think there's a there's a distinction here, right? Um, godliness and contentment are different than complacency or status quo, and they're not incompatible with having aspirations. Um, God is active, actively sanctifying us. He's conforming us more and more to the image and likeness of Christ. We should be changing and moving. We, be, we should be becoming more holy. And so godliness isn't you know, the emptying of desires like we see in some Eastern religion, uh, religions, but it's the right ordering of those desires within us. And so we should aspire uh, to be you know, husbands and fathers and wives and mothers. We should aspire um, for good things. It's a good thing to start and grow a business or to serve citizens in politics. Uh, we should all aspire to be excellent in whatever we're doing. And so also it's a good thing uh, for young men to aspire to church office. And we should be praying that the Lord is uh, calling young men to this. Uh, we need the next generation of leaders to take over throughout the life of the church. So it's a good thing, it is noble, and it is also a task. 
Um, and I was struck by the commentators all highlighted this at the very beginning of how much the ministry is work. Uh, Matthew Henry said this, It is a work which requires diligence and application, a work of the greatest importance and designed for the greatest good. The ministry is conversant about no lower concerns than the life and happiness of immortal souls. It is a good work because designed to illustrate the divine perfections in bringing many sons to glory. The ministry is appointed to open men's eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. So it's this amazing work. It's this, this fantastic uh, goal and thing to pour oneself into. But it's toil, right? It's not a cushy position with benefits. It's actually hard work. Um, and Calvin said that as well. He says, the general meaning is that you must take great care in selecting bishops, since the office is a difficult one, and those who aspire to it must carefully consider whether they are capable of carrying such a heavy burden. It's this difficult task. Um, And Calvin also said it's not just any kind of work, but excellent work, like Matthew Henry said, and therefore hard and difficult. And I thought it was interesting that he equated the idea of it being um, excellent and hard and how those go together. Um, you know, you think in the, in the business world, as you tackle priorities, you're looking for the most bang for your buck, right? So you're saying, I want to take the low effort project that gives me the highest return. Um, and that's not what we see in ministry, right? It's the most excellent thing. It's high value, but it's also high effort. And the time duration is very long, right? So we, we might not even see the results of our effort in this life. Um, but that's okay because of the excellence of the task. All right, so let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 7. We'll start talking about qualifications. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. All right, so let's talk about these in order. Um, above reproach, this is in some ways a kind of a general qualification that uh, summarizes a lot of the more detailed ones below. Uh, this is similar to Titus 1.7, where he says the elder must be blameless. Um, and so this is a qualification that the elder uh, not have kind of glaring sins or gross scandal. Um, Calvin said he should not be tainted with disgrace that might detract from his authority. Right, so it's not saying that they're sinless right, or they never sin. Obviously, that's impossible. Um, but it's the idea is that they shouldn't have a reputation that's blackened by scandal or be marked by exceptionally glaring sins. So they need to be above reproach. And the husband of one wife... So husband of one wife, Uh, this is not really a problem in our culture, but of course this would disbar uh, polygamy. Um, 
it doesn't disqualify someone whose spouse has died or they were married, um, or even someone previously divorced necessarily, but it speaks more to the current fidelity. Uh, is this person a man of faithfulness? And I think it's telling that marital, fide- uh, marital fidelity here really heads the list of qualifications um, that we see. Because as we think about uh, marriage being a picture of Christ in the church, the husband's role is to represent Christ in that marriage. And so he is, the goal is for him to reflect the faithfulness that Christ has for his bride by his own fidelity to his wife. And so this is an essential qualification for an elder in the church. So marital fidelity. Then sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. These are all kind of similar, so I highlighted them together. Uh, Sober-minded means thoughtful or realistic, not driven to and fro by whims or by pressure from the world. Someone who possesses sound judgment. Uh, They're clear-headed. Goes with an idea of being uh, vigilant and watchful because the elder has to care for his own soul and the souls of others as well. Uh, being self-controlled means that he, someone who rules their spirit, they're not ruled by their appetites, uh, not given to excess, but temperate and moderate, prudent, thoughtful, and disciplined. Um, and respectable means that they're not, they're not silly, but dignified, right? They have, it, it kind of speaks to deportment and demeanor, someone who's admirable, uh, that, that people would want to emulate, I liked what Matthew Henry said. He said, he must be of good behavior, composed and solid, not, lame, not light, vain, and frothy. <laughs> Don't be frothy. Hospitable, someone who's welcoming and capable of providing Christian hospitality and fellowship in the home. And again, Matthew Henry, uh, I really liked what he said about this, uh, this idea of being open-handed open-handed with strangers, uh, willing to use your own resources for the good of others uh, rather than having your hope set on the world. We're going to talk about lover of money later, but he kind of tied the idea of how we use our resources with hospitality. Um, And so this is describing someone who loves the brethren and is a steward of God's resources and happy to use them for the good of others in his service. Um, And I thought, too, you you know, using resources for the blessing of others in light of hospitality, it's more personal than just stroking a check, right? That's one way to use your resources. But in the, the sense of being, hospitality, uh, of being um, hospitable, there's a much more personal investment that you're investing uh, your time. Sometimes it can be inconvenient, right, as well. And so there's, there's more of this, you know, personal connection of pouring yourself out for the good of the saints. Um, able to teach. So there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap between the elder and deacon qualifications, uh, but this one is unique to elder, and the, one of the few, if maybe not the only, uh, one that speaks to ability instead of character. Um, and this ability is necessary because one of the primary functions of the elder is to teach. Um, so the elder must be able to clearly convey spiritual truths. And um, Calvin pointed out as well that this is not just eloquence, right? It's not just an ability to speak well but really uh, gets to the ability to rightly apply God's word. Um, And this is so important. We see this with the false teachers as well. Surely many of them were eloquent, but they're teaching lies instead of the truth. And so this is a core part of this ability to teach is also the ability to rightly apply God's word. Um, Not a drunkard. So someone who doesn't get drunk, they show self-control with regard to alcohol consumption. 
Of course, the Bible doesn't condemn all drinking, but it does condemn drinking to excess. And so the man of God is to exercise self-control in all areas of life, uh, but especially with regard to alcohol. Um, And Ephesians 5 gets this so well when it says, do not be drunk with wine, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And I believe it literally says, don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. There's this contrast, right? That the man of God is, is, uh, is not to be marked by overindulgence, but is to be marked by being full of the Spirit, of finding joy and satisfaction in the Lord. So not a drunkard, and then not violent, but gentle. Calvin said, one who can bear injuries and absorb insults. Uh, Matthew Henry described this as someone who's not intimidating or pugnacious. Um, And I think we get a really great picture of this from Isaiah 40. This is about Christ. It says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So you have this picture of this gentle shepherd caring for the sheep. And that's exactly what the, the elder here, the elder candidate should be like, is someone who's gentle, who has this tenderness toward the sheep that we see Christ has with his own church. So gentle, and then not quarrelsome. And this one is really a particular problem of the false teachers that we see in 1 Timothy. Uh, it comes up multiple times. 1 Timothy 6, skipping ahead a little bit, says, if, uh, verses 3 to 4, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an, un- an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the, tr- of the truth. So there's this emphasis on uh, controversy. There's this quarreling that comes up. In 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. <laughs> and I think it's important to point out that there is a, there's a difference here between having substantive discussions about doctrine and quarreling over words. Right? So um, it's, it doesn't mean that we never disagree in the church or that we don't go to the mat at times. Uh, for the truth. It doesn't mean that we go along to get along. Uh, We are to contend for the truth, but we're not to quarrel over words. And so I think that gets to the content. The content of what we're discussing matters. And so that he's saying there's some things that are trivial that that we shouldn't be quarreling over. So the content matters, and I think the attitude matters as well. What is the attitude with which we're going into some sort of confrontation or discussion? So not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. First uh, Timothy 6.10 says the love of money is the root of evil. So Paul's going to address this love of money more later in First Timothy as well. Uh, Matthew 6, Christ's teaching, he says you cannot serve both God and money. Uh, so the elder must be God's servant. Right? The love of money is idolatry. We think of the first commandment. We are to love the Lord God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And so the elder is supposed to emulate that. Um, Matthew Henry put it this way. He said, uh, the man is supposed to be dead to the wealth of the world and lives above it. And I liked that, this idea that it has nothing for you because of the delight that the elder has in Christ. The elder has this greater calling than material success and wealth in this life. And then verse 4, he must manage his own household well 
with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So exercising leadership in the home is an important test of one's ability to lead in the church. He's saying that the home is this proving ground for leadership. So he's, he's arguing here from the lesser to the greater, right? Saying that one who is unable to rule his own family uh, cannot govern a larger group of people. Uh, if you're faithful in small things, you'll be faithful in much, right? That's the principle at work here. Um, this does not preclude um, unmarried men or men without children. Uh, we think of Paul himself, right? But there is a certain wisdom in human interactions that comes from marriage and family. Um, Calvin said, those who know ordinary life and are well-practiced in the duties that human relationships impose are far better trained and fitted to rule in the church, right? So there's this wisdom that comes from uh, experiencing this range of human interactions that we see in the family um, and in, you know, being responsible for a family. So managing household, and then verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. <clears throat> so no matter the giftedness of someone, uh, it takes time to mature in the faith, and it takes time to demonstrate character. So what this is saying is that the candidate should have some track record of walking faithfully with the Lord um, over time. And it, I think it's telling, you know, most of the qualifications here are about character, which I think I've said before. And character is not something that you can know about someone on day one, right? You, you know character over time. It's over the duration of time that character is proven. And so I think that's why this is such an important uh, qualification here. Uh, with maturity also comes humility. So one young in the faith is more likely to be uh, puffed up with pride to the detriment of the church. And so this gets the idea of the condemnation of the devil, um, it doesn't mean that this person falls under the devil's judgment, but that if he's puffed up with pride, then he's falling in the same way that Satan did, right? Pride is what led Satan to fall. And so he's falling kind of under the same judgment or deserving of the same kind of condemnation uh, that Satan experienced. All right, and then finally, he must be well thought of by outsiders, um, so Paul is uh, suggesting, I think, that if someone outside the church can call a church member's character into question, then they're probably not fit for office. Right? So the idea is that we live lives of integrity, that they're the same in all spheres of life, or our general practice should be consistent whether we're in the church or whether uh, we're operating in broader society. Um, and so to appoint a man of you know, doubtful reputation to a place of leadership in the Christian community could bring disgrace to the church. Um, and, you know, I have to say, the world is going to hate the church, right? So it doesn't mean that, um, you know, the candidate should share the world's values or something or be applauded by the world uh, even, you know, for, for like their values or moral judgments per se, but that their personal character should be respected even in the secular sphere. So that is the list of Elder qualifications, and as, as I said before, the, uh, the deacon qualifications are similar in a lot of ways. So some of these that are similar, we're going to just roll through pretty quickly here. Any, any questions on that before I move on? 
All right, let's read verses 8 through 13. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. All right, so the deacon must be dignified. Uh, This is very similar to the idea of the elder being respectable that we talked about earlier. Uh, It's a public office, and so some measure of gravity is required, right? They have a dignified bearing. Um, Not double-tongued. This means they're sincere, they're a person of integrity, uh, that they say what they mean and they mean what they say, that you can rely on them uh, to do what they're going to say, that they keep their word. Um, Not addicted to wine. This is the same as the elder qualification not to be a drunkard. Um, This makes someone unfit for office and opens the door uh, to all sorts of um, temptations. I think, you know, part of the underlying theme here whether it's, you know, blameless or above reproach or not addicted to wine, um, is that the officer is not enslaved to any particular sin. Um, And so this is a, you know, a prime example of that. Not greedy for dishonest gain. So this parallels the idea that the elder is not a lover of money. Um, And this is especially important for deacons because they typically handle the collection of funds and Um, depositing of funds, right? So it's extremely important that they not be overly susceptible uh, to greed, um, lest, you know, something like embezzlement happen in the church. The nine, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So mystery here refers to God's whole revealed plan of salvation. And the deacon is not required to teach like the elder Uh, But they should have a good grasp of the fundamentals of the faith and live a life consistent with the gospel. Um, Calvin said this, he said, It would be absurd for them to hold public office in the church and to be ignorant about the Christian faith, especially as they will often have to give advice and comfort if they are not to neglect their duties. I thought I really liked that because he talks about uh, the deacon giving advice and comfort, right? That it's not just, um, you know, providing for physical needs, per se, but there's also this, there is a spiritual aspect to the role, right, that the deacon should be able to provide words of of encouragement and truth, right, at the proper time, as well as giving that physical assistance. Then verse 10, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So the deacon has been proven faithful and in accord with the qualifications and the church should see in their lives that they're faithful, they're trustworthy of holding office. And it gets to that idea that we talked about a minute ago about character being proven over time. Um, and so at All Saints, we, I think of kind of two forms of testing that we have. Uh, and one is this idea of character proven over time in the sense that, you know, when we encourage you all to nominate men for office, we say look for people who uh, are already serving, who already meet these qualifications, who are already proving that they're living this lifestyle that is commended here. So that's kind of one form of testing, if you will. It's kind of this initial bar of saying, um, is the person already serving the church? 
Are they already living this exemplary lifestyle? And then after nomination, of course, we have the training process um, and testing uh, to confirm understanding of the doctrines that they're holding the, the faith of the clear conscience um, as well as the examination of character. All right, verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So the Greek word translated wives here means wives or women more generally, and the context tells you which one it is. And so this has given rise to various interpretations of what exactly this verse means. Uh, It could mean wives of deacons. Some people think that this actually is proposing female deacons or female diaconal assistants. I think that wives is the proper understanding here. Um, The ESV translates it this way. I think most other translations that I've seen do as well. And so there's a consistent understanding among the scholars uh, who are close to the text and translating it. Um, It also makes logical sense, uh, given verse 12, that he's starting to talk about the deacon's family. Um, And then as we talked about last week, uh, the apostles were uh, men. The first deacons were men. We think about the priests and the Levites in the Old Testament. Uh, We don't see uh, female deacons described anywhere else, so I think it's a little little dubious to interpret this as warranting uh, female office since this goes against the established pattern that we've seen. We looked at last week, all of church history, we have this pattern of male leadership in the church. I think one of the primary objections to this is, well, why is it listed here in the section on deacons and it's not listed in the elder section above? That doesn't you know, seem to make sense. Um, Calvin thinks that it implicitly refers to both. Um, I also think that um, it's possible that you know, Paul had in mind that uh, the wives of deacons could be perhaps more involved in assisting their husbands in the, in the ministry as kind of mercy ministry type of things than the wives of elders who are you know, explicitly disbarred from you know, assisting in preaching and teaching, for instance. Did you have a question? Oh, I'm not suggesting that it's, it means that. Yes, okay. So there's some uh, translations or some people that translate the word wives as women. And I guess the Greek word can mean either depending on the context. So that's where that comes in. Does that help? Yeah, Sparky. Great, thank you. Did everyone hear that? Maybe, sort of. Yeah, so Sparky is saying that it's a good translation given the context. And also, since the deacons are working with both men and women in the body, um, there's some you know, protective aspect, especially given the widows in Acts 6, of the wife working alongside them for the, the good of the body. So, oh yeah, I was going to read this. Uh, Matthew Henry said this about this verse. They must be of grave behavior, not slanderers, talebearers, carrying stories to make mischief and sow discord. They must be sober and faithful in all things, not given to any excess, but trusty in all that is committed to them. All who are related to ministers must double their care to walk as becomes the gospel of Christ, lest if in anything, it, lest if they in anything walk disorderly, the ministry be blamed. Right, so he's saying that those who are related to office to an officer reflect on that officer to some degree, and so that's why it's important for uh, the wives, especially, to also 
uh, be marked by these characteristics. All right, verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. All right, so this is the same as elder. It speaks to marital fidelity. Um, and similarly, the managing children and households well. Right, If one cannot govern their own household, then how are they fit for leadership in the church? Um, and this also underlines the, the idea of the deacon being an office of leadership, since it's talking about managing your household as being a qualification. And then I love verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good understanding for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Um, This is unique to deacons. This is not in the section on elders. Um, And it says two things. It says they gain a good standing for themselves. I think this means that they gain uh, respect from the congregation for their faithful service. The congregation sees them uh, serving them and really appreciates that work and admires their selflessness. Um, And so they gain this standing for themselves as those who care for the flock in that way. And then great confidence. They gain great confidence in the faith. Um, And I think this means that the deacon himself gets increased confidence in the faith from doing this ministry, that their service grows their faith as they see the Lord care for his flock and bless his people through them. And I think it was, we were at a session meeting a few weeks ago, and uh, Wes pointed out this very thing, uh, that when God uses you to love the flock, it actually strengthens your understanding of God's love and care for you. Um, I thought that was an interesting insight. There's a, different pers- there's a little bit of a different perspective from serving or serving behind the scenes in these ways. You get to see the Lord's work in people's hearts that isn't always evident to the congregation. Um, And so I think that's part of this as well. And then I also think that uh, Matthew 6 always holds true, right? When Christ said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, That is true in all of life. But I know I've experienced this personally as well, that uh, when you're invested in serving the church, you grow in love for the church. And so the greater that investment, uh, the greater you love the church. So as we think about these traits as a whole, uh, they're really traits that should describe every believer, right? These, character, these uh, qualifications are mostly about godly character. Uh, the only ability was the teaching ability for elders, since this is a core function of leadership. Um, but otherwise, it's focused on character. Um, I think that reveals something or reaffirms something about uh, God and about the church and the reality that God does the work of the church. So we think about, you know, what is the mission of the church? It's to make disciples, right? He said, go into all the earth and make disciples, uh, the Great Commission. Uh, but how does that happen? How is a disciple actually made, right? They have to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. God has to do the work, right? God can regenerate the dead. He alone can do that. He is the one who can take a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. God is the one who sanctifies his people. And so he uses you know, the preaching of the word, uh, the worship of the church, the fellowship of the saints, but ultimately, it's his work, and he's the one that has to do it. And so it's interesting, I think, telling when we look at these qualifications, right? It's not about your oratory skills. It's not, he's not looking for savvy marketers, right? He's looking for people who have character, who are faithful, uh, who will hold to this trustworthy word as taught and convey that message to the current generation. And so 
uh, as we think about church leadership, right, ultimately, it's not really about innovation or growth strategies. It's about holding the truth with a clear conscience and caring for the flock as we journey together to heaven. And I want to say this as well. You know, this list should describe every believer, but it's also quite a list. And it's extremely daunting for anyone who's contemplated office to hold yourself up to the standard. Right? And it's a heavy responsibility to hold church office. And so I want to read uh, this quote from Matthew Henry. Uh, he wrote this at the conclusion of his commentary on this section. And I want to read this as an encouragement to those of us, uh, those of you out there who are, who are currently serving in office. He says this, Upon the whole, having briefly gone through the qualifications of a gospel bishop, we may infer what a great reason we have to cry out, as Paul does, who is sufficient for these things? 2 Corinthians 2.16. Hic labor, hoc opus. This is a work indeed. What piety, what prudence, what zeal, what courage, what faithfulness, what watchfulness over ourselves, our lusts, appetites, and passions, and over those under our charge. I say, what holy watchfulness is necessary in this work? Have not the best qualified and the most faithful and conscientious ministers just reason to complain against themselves that so much is requisite by way of qualification and so much work is necessary to be done. And alas, how far short do the best come of what they should be and what they should do. So he's highlighting how daunting it is and how much we fall short of what we are called to as officers. And then he says this. Here's where the encouragement comes in. He says, Yet let those bless God and be thankful whom the Lord has enabled and counted faithful, putting them into the ministry. If God is pleased to make any in some degree able and faithful, let him have the praise and glory of it. For the encouragement of all faithful ministers, we have Christ's gracious word of promise. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Matthew twenty-eight twenty. And if he be with us, he will fit us for our work in some measure, will carry us through the difficulties of it with comfort, graciously pardon our imperfections, and reward our faithfulness with a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So if he has called you to office, he will provide the resources for it. He will equip you. He is with you in it. You are not alone. All right. Yes, Scott. Hold the faith of the clear conscience. Yeah. I think it means sincerely, yes, that you sincerely believe that you have a grasp of the fundamentals. Um, and I think clear conscience also else, elsewhere speaks to uh, living a life of integrity. So you're living in accord with that belief. Does that help? Yes. Yeah. That's a great question. Uh, so the question, if anyone didn't hear it, is why is there... Why does there tend to be a prevailing um, opinion in the church that deacon is somehow a step under elder or that it's a stepping stone? You have to kind of be a deacon first before you can come and become an elder or that the role of elder is somehow better than the role of deacon. Um, and you're absolutely right that they are clearly described here as distinct offices. They're not the same. Um, and I think they're of equal value and importance. Uh, and my, um, my first thought on this, I'd be interested to hear if anyone else has a different opinion, but um, my first thought on this is that 
you know, perhaps there's some of this um, ascetic mindset even that, or teaching that Paul was dealing with in Ephesus that has, that kind of like undergirds even our thinking today with the idea that somehow, somehow like the spiritual is better or, or more important than the physical. And so we had this, this move, it led to all sorts of movements, right? Monasticism where people say, I'm going to try, I'm going to jettison the physical world as much as possible and just focus on the spiritual because that is what matters. And I think maybe some of that attitude might be underlying the idea that uh, we would view the elder, elder's role as better somehow than deacon. Yeah, there's a different, different responsibility, but same value. All right, so last few verses here to wrap up chapter 3. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So this is Paul's uh, purpose statement for why he wrote the letter, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, saying, how then should we live? What does the Christian life practically look like? What behavior should mark the child of God? Um, And so in chapter 1, we talked about this pure heart, the clear conscience, the sincere faith. Chapter 2, we talked about prayer and modesty and self-control and good works. And the rest of the letter deals in practical exhortations as well. He's going to get into training for godliness, um, caring for widows, providing for the needs of one's family, contentment, fleeing the passions of youth, pursuing righteousness, generosity. And so the reality is that the gospel demands changed behavior, right? That those whom God has justified will be sanctified. If there's no sanctification, then it calls into question uh, justification because the tree is known by its fruit, right? So as members of God's household adopted into his family, we have to start to bear that family resemblance uh, and be more and more characterized by godliness. Um, this is all over the New Testament. I pulled out some examples of this. Maybe I'll just read a couple of these. First uh, Peter 4, 3-5, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There's this distinction between the former life and the life in Christ. And I'll just read Colossians 3, 5 to 10 as well. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to, what, uh, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so how are we to do that? Uh, next week in chapter 4, Paul is going to talk about training for godliness. So we'll get into that more next week. In verse 15, Paul describes the church as the church of the living God. The church of the living God. Um, and I think that gives the sense that the community of believers is where God's presence is. That the li- and, and God is living. He's active in the church. We think of uh, Matthew 16, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them, that God is not on the periphery, he's not 
you know, vaguely interested in the circumstances of mankind, but keeping a healthy distance. He's actively engaged in the life of his people. So we see that in how he's justifying them through faith, uniting them with Christ, sanctifying them through the Spirit, governing and shepherding them through the elders that he has called, serving the practical needs through the deacons that he has called, uh, caring for them in the families that he's placed them in, guarding his people so that none of them is lost, as John 17 says. Uh, He's delighting in the worship of the saints, and he's spiritually present with us at the table. God is not a disinterested sovereign. He is reigning right now. He is the living God. And this church is called a pillar and buttress of the truth. So God has given the church the task of protecting and advancing the gospel. The church has this responsibility to spread and to maintain it. And this is a priceless treasure, right? The gospel is this priceless treasure uh, that Christ has entrusted um, to the church for its preservation. Um, And it's interesting when you think about this, I mean, uh, you know, I think, well, surely it'd be more effective for God to just send angels all over the world to proclaim the gospel. Sure, you know, that would certainly be more effective than, you know, you and I telling people about Christ. Um, but that's not how God has ordained it, right? He uses the church. He uses us, fallen human beings, uh, redeemed in Christ, to spread the word. It makes me think of 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay, right? It seems ludicrous to put treasure in a jar of clay, And yet that is what he's done because the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And the church here is also portrayed as holding up kind of this edifice of truth before the world and against false teaching. So the world suppresses the truth in unrighteousness, as we know from Romans 1, but the church is the place where the truth of God should shine forth in the profession of the gospel and in faithful teaching about who God is. And of course, the church is only that pillar and buttress to the, of the truth to the extent that it remains faithful to the revealed word of God. And so what is that truth that the church is to maintain? Uh, Paul tells us in verse 16, he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then we have this uh, Christian hymn here. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So we have this mystery of godliness. What is this mystery? It's the gospel. It's, the, it's God's revealed plan of salvation. And this is a common um, New Testament term, actually, mystery. You see it in Ephesians 3, Paul says, "...to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things." And then Colossians 1.27 and 2, two, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then Colossians 2.2, 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And so Colossians is underlined the fact that the gospel is, is Christ himself. That is what it is about. Salvation, ultimately, is union with Christ. And so this uh, statement, this creedal statement or hymn that we have here, is about Christ. This summarizes the gospel, and it's all about the person and work of Christ. So it says this in the first line, He was manifested in the flesh. So it's talking about the incarnation. 
And we have this line uh, that is kind of bookended by the two natures of Christ. So he uh, is talking about Christ and his divine nature, and then we have flesh talking about the human nature. So he's describing how Christ is fully God and fully man, united in two natures. Uh, This is who he is. He is the God-man. And he was vindicated by the Spirit, and this speaks to the resurrection, that Christ was raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit. Uh, Romans 1, 3 to 4 um, talks about this as well. Verse 4 says that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the idea that the resurrection is this guarantee that Christ's atoning work was sufficient to exhaust the wrath of God for our sin. And Christ's person and work were vindicated in the resurrection. He's manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, um, then seen by angels. So he's displayed in victory before the heavenly beings. Uh, The angels did not know how God's plan of redemption would unfold. And so this speaks to their amazement when Christ's ascension, right after the cross, at how this work of God was accomplished. And I love the, the scene of worship in Revelation 5. I think captures this well. I was going to read the whole thing, but I think we're running short on time, so I might, might skip ahead a little bit here. Then I, Yeah, I'll start when, in uh, verse 11, I guess. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the vo- or excuse me. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So we can see the angels worshiping the ascended Christ. All right, and then proclaimed among the nations. So it's talking about Christ being preached to the Gentiles, to all the ends of the earth. We see this throughout the book of Acts. The gospel is going forth. Um, And then believed on in the world. So this preaching goes forth, and it's actually effective, right, that many are actually coming to Christ, and they are believing Um, And we, or at least I, tend to take salvation and faith for granted. But as we discussed last week, this redemption that we have in Christ is nothing less than the resurrection of the dead. And so we should be astounded at God's work, that it is going forth, um, and that many uh, Christ is is winning many sons to glory. And then finally, taken up in glory. So this one's a little bit out of chronological order, but I think uh, probably placed at the end in anticipation of the future exaltation of Christ when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So Christ is reigning now. He is sitting at the right hand of God with all power and authority given to him, making intercession for us even as we speak. That will conclude us for today. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go to the next service. All right, Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you um, for this gospel that you have entrusted to us. Lord, we do pray that it would go forth with power, that you would continue to raise the dead to newness of life in Christ. Uh, We pray that you would fill us full of joy as we reflect on your kindness to us, uh, that we would worship you uh, in spirit and in truth as we go next door. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.